I have a friend named Hank, and he used to have a saying. He would tell people, he would say, when the map and the terrain disagree, trust the terrain. Uh, according to him, I don't know if this is true, but he said it was from the French artillery back, backup police. Um, okay. To the very beginning. <laughs> okay. So keyboard bounces. So um, this is this is the saying he used a lot, when the map and the terrain disagreed to trust the terrain. Um, he said it he dated to the French artillery back in the time of uh, Napoleon. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's, it makes sense, right? If you look around and your map says you're here, but you look around and it doesn't look at all like the map would, would suggest, which are you going to believe, you know, the, the map or your lying eyes? And it just makes sense that you should trust the terrain. But that doesn't mean that maps don't have any value, right? A map tells you something that the terrain can never tell you. The terrain will tell you what this place is, but it won't tell you where this place is, and it won't tell you how to get from this place to somewhere else. So you need a map in order to be effective in going anywhere. Uh, we had people who recently traveled from Oregon to uh, Alaska. Um, I would not want to do that without a map or at least a GPS. So... Um, or my milepost. So, you know, where's the next restaurant? Where's the next restroom? All the things you want to know. A map can tell you those things, uh, whereas the terrain can only tell you, here you are, and this is what it looks like where you are. So, um, in the church world, we call a map vision. We've been in this conversation uh, for the last couple of weeks. We're going to wrap it up today. But the, the thing we've been discussing is that the 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 church is in kind of a problem, at least in North America. In some parts of the world, it's thriving. But in North America, it's declining. Um, the church has actually got problems that result from the fact that what the church has been doing for most of the last 2,000 years isn't working anymore. It's not working in the same way, and it's really not working um, effectively at all. So uh, the church is in decline. The church is in trouble. And so what we've been trying to do is to figure out how we can carry out the mission that Jesus assigned us uh, the the now what? If Jesus has been raised from the dead, if we are celebrating Easter, if we are Easter people, what do we do next? How do we how do we go from here? Given that all the the guidance and the the wisdom of the previous generations is suspect, not not that it's all wrong, but that it's not achieving the results it used to achieve. So, what do we do in that circumstance? If we have the terrain. And we've got a map. What do we do when we start to suspect that the map and the terrain no longer agree? Well, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the story of the early church, which um, faced kind of the same challenge. They didn't even have the map at that point, uh, but they they figured things out, and they actually were the ones that the church was guided by for most of the next 2,000 years. So we're trying to recalibrate our map by looking at the early church. And so for the last couple of weeks, what we've been looking at, we noticed the first thing they did is what people tell you to do. When you're lost, you're not supposed to set out on a journey. You're supposed to hug a tree, right? If you ever had a wilderness survival class, you get lost. What do you do? You stop moving around. So what we saw is the first thing Jesus said when he gave them these instructions is he said, wait, I'll get to you presently. The Holy Spirit will come on you not too many days from now. And what we saw is that waiting is not the same thing as idleness. Actually, what the early church did is it took that time, it took that opportunity to orient itself 
around the mission that God had given it. The, the church began to pray so that what Jesus had assigned them would no longer be Jesus' task that they had been given, what would become their task that they wanted Jesus' help to achieve. So the church took the time to pray during that period of waiting. We also saw that the church grows, that it's not that, that Jesus told the church to grow. Jesus told the church to be his witnesses, to, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But what we see in the book of Acts is that over and over and over again, the normal and natural result of a church that is carrying out the mission that Jesus assigns it is growth. And what we saw there is that the church needs to put systems in place to become the church that it feels that God is calling it to become. That we can't rest on the church we are. We have to always be looking at the church that Christ is calling us to be and put the systems in place so that when we have our particular Hellenists uh, and our Hellenist widows, we don't overlook them. We don't make them feel small or undervalued because they aren't people we're used to dealing with. So we build systems for the church that God is calling us to be. And then last week what we saw is that despite any systems we build, any anticipation we might have about church growth, the reality is a lot of people that we know, a lot of people we interact with daily, are never going to come to a church. Or at least they're not going to start by coming to a church. And so what we saw last week is we jump in. That the people we know are a lot more interested in our credibility than our credentials. That, that people know who we are. And if we have a relationship with Christ, it's that credibility we earn with people that's going to bring them into a relationship with Jesus. That's going to be our witness more than anything that we might have here, any kind of credentials the church might uh, assign to us. So that's kind of where we've been. We've been looking at some ways the map and the terrain disagree. But today we're going to wrap things up by looking at the map because, because the terrain only tells you where you are. It doesn't tell you where that is. It doesn't, it tells you, yes, you are in this place. This is the situation you're in. But it doesn't tell you what to do about it. It doesn't give you any vision of what you can do about it. But the church has a vision. The church is led by vision. The vision is actually the tool that we use to translate our mission into action. It is, it is a translation tool because our mission is very generic. Every church in the country has the same mission. Every church in the world has the same mission. It is to make disciples of Jesus Christ or it is to bear witness to the risen Lord. It is the same basic idea, but it doesn't tell you how to do that where you are. The other day I was walking by the, the Filipino church up in um, Raspberry. There, there's, there are 12 faith communities, um, Christian faith communities, within a mile of this building. Um, there's nine buildings, and I might have missed something, but there's nine buildings, and three of those have more than one congregation that meet there. So I was I was over at the Filipino church the other day, I walking by, and I noticed they were having a car wash. How did they decide to have a car wash? Jesus did not say, go into the world and have car washes. Does that mean it was wrong? Does it mean they were right, and actually we need to have a car wash too? You know, how do we as a church know how to translate our mission into the actual things we do on a daily basis, the events that the church takes part in, the programs, the the mission partnerships we have. How do we do that? Well, the mission is a tool, the, the vision is a tool to help us to get to that place. And in particular, when we've had trouble achieving the goals 
that we have, that's a great time to get out our map and think about where we are and where God might be calling us to go. So we're going to see that in our passage today. Um, in in the, the, the book of Acts, uh, last week we were in chapter 8, and we were hearing about how the church began to spread out of Jerusalem through, through Samaria because of a persecution that was going on against the church. It was led by a man named Paul. Well, 15 years have passed, and now Paul has changed sides. Paul had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. He decided he was going to be a Christian too, and he and a friend of his named Barnabas have had what was called the first missionary journey. Uh, they, they started in a city called Antioch, and then they went to the island of Cyprus, and then to the south-central part of Asia Minor. They went on a, a missionary journey, and then they, they encountered some trouble. They kind of, like us, they kind of said, you know, we're getting some grief. Uh, sorry, we're not ready for the second missionary journey yet. We'll come back. Um, so they, they had some trouble. They had some trouble along the way, and uh, they, they said, we need to check this out. So they went to Jerusalem, and in chapter 15, we can see what happened there. They had a, they had a meeting with all the leaders of the church in chapter 15, where they said, you know, as we've been meeting with these people in Asia Minor, we've started to uncover some problems. We're not sure exactly what it is we're called to do in the church. We have a terrain problem up there in Asia Minor. So they went to the, the church in Jerusalem and they said, can you help us figure that out? So they did. They had this meeting and then they went back home to Antioch. And after they'd been in Antioch in a little bit, uh, Barnabas said, hey, we need to go back to those same churches and share with them what we have learned, you know, kind of this decision that's taken place. So Barnabas says, let's go back and revisit that first missionary journey. And Paul says, that's a great idea. But before they go, they get into an argument. They get into an argument over John Mark, and and they end up deciding, you know what, you go to Cyprus. Barnabas ends up going to Cyprus, and Paul goes to this south-central part of Asia Minor. And so that is the second missionary journey. And so let me show you it on the map. So this is Asia Minor in Greece. And then the next picture shows where they set out from. They set out from Antioch, okay, which is um, on that side where they begin. They set out from there and they go to the south central part of Asia Minor. And we read in the scriptures, we read, they delivered to them for observation the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. They say, last time we were here, we had problems. We have talked it over, and we all agree that these are the answers to those to those problems that we discussed about five years ago. So they say, uh, what is the result of that? The churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. So, mission accomplished. They have achieved the thing that they had planned to do. And now they're trying to figure out what to do next. And there's a big road that goes from the south-central part of uh, Asia Minor, to Ephesus. The Ephesus is the city on the west coast there. And they say, well, let's take this road west. We'll go to Ephesus, and we'll plant some churches in Ephesus. But they can't. What the Scripture tells us is that when they start to do the obvious thing, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Why did they go there? Because they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. In those days, Asia meant that far western part of Asia Minor. So they couldn't go there. That's the red X. They couldn't go there. So they said, okay, well, let's go north. So they went north, and they got a little further north, but when they came opposite Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Bithynia is the north coast of Asia Minor, up against the Black Sea. They said, well, let's go there. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, 
okay, you can't go north. So they say, let's go west. So they go down to um, Mysia, down to, to Troas. And it is there during the night that Paul has a vision. He has a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. You know, it's intriguing to me that Jesus said, be my witnesses. But by this time, Paul is so caught up in what happens when people learn that Jesus is risen from the grave that his vision says, come over and help us. For him, the two are the same thing. So when he had seen this vision, we immediately tried to cross over into Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. So Paul shares his vision with the others, and they say, okay, let's go. And they, they get in their boat. They go to uh, to uh, Samothrace and then to um, Neapolis. Samothrace is an island, and then Neapolis is is um, an island. And then uh, uh, Neapolis is, is on the coast. And then they go from there into to Philippi, which is a leading city of this district, the, this part of Macedonia. And it says they remain in the city for some days. And at this point, I'm going, what about the man of Macedonia? What happened to him? We don't know. They've been in the city a couple of days. Maybe they see him. Maybe they don't. Uh, Maybe he was a generic figure that Paul just kind of got this idea. There are people in Macedonia who need to hear this message. Uh, We don't know because the startling thing is the first person we hear of in the book of Acts after Paul has a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us, is a woman a woman named Lydia. So on the Sabbath day, they go outside the river, the gate by the river. Why do they go outside the gate? Because it, he told us Philippi was a Roman colony. A Roman colony was supposed to be a little outpost of Rome. They they were uh, they would retire veterans from the Roman armies there, and they got special treatment. They got a little plot of land that they could be a farmer on. They would get be exempt from taxes. And the whole idea is there should be a really loyal city, that everybody in this city would really be loyal to Rome. And so if you're trying to maintain a big empire, it's good to have little loyal outposts every so often. So Philippi was supposed to be just like Rome, only small and in a foreign country. And one of the rules they had is you couldn't worship foreign gods there. So if you wanted to worship the god that the Jews worshipped, you had to go outside of town. So they say, let's go outside of town, and they do. And and so they're about a mile and a half out of town where the river is, and they find that there are women who have gathered there for prayer. And they meet Lydia, a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God means she's not a Jew. She's she's somebody who is from the pagan cultures in the community, but she has somehow heard about the God that the Jews worship, and she started worshiping that God herself. And she's uh, she's rich. She's a dealer in purple cloth. Only rich people could buy purple cloth. So she's probably rich. And the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. And then she and her household are baptized, she says, come stay with me. And Paul, who wrote a quarter of the New Testament, he's always engaged in arguments and defeating people by the wisdom of his arguments. He's prevailed on by Lydia. So he's saying, no, no, I couldn't do that. And she goes, oh, yes, you can. And so she actually wins that argument with Paul. So that's where we leave the story. Because I want to, I want to pause for a minute and just look at this vision that Paul has and see what we can, what we can generalize about it. What can we learn about vision in the church? So I've got a couple of things that, that jumped out at me. The first is this incomplete. Paul gets a vision of a man in Macedonia. He does not get instructions. This is a picture of what might be. It's not instructions. It's not turn-by-turn instructions like your, like your phone can give you now with maps. It, it's, it's God saying, 
Paul, look a little, look a little wider. Think outside the box here, Paul. It's not God saying, I booked you travel on the pride of Troas that's leaving from the docks on Tuesday at 9 a.m. It's an incomplete picture of what might be. But it's not instructions because God knows Paul and Silas and Timothy are smart people. They can figure out how to book travel on a boat. They know how to get from here to Macedonia. God just gives them an incomplete vision and lets them fill in the gaps. God wants us to be participants in the work he's called us to do. So the first thing we see here is that it's incomplete. The second thing is it opens up possibilities. Paul is, as some of you know, Paul is a man of Tarsus. He is from the southeast corner of Asia Minor. If if Asia Minor were the United States, he's from Florida. He's from a little city in the southeast corner of Asia Minor called Tarsus. And as far as we know, all Paul's ever done in his life is traveled in Asia Minor and in the Holy Land. Paul has had his sights on Asia Minor up to this very point. But God gives him a vision of something different. God says, have you considered Europe? You know, last week we looked at the story of how people in Africa first heard about the the good news about Jesus. And now, 15 years later, we're learning about how people in Europe first heard about Jesus' resurrection. Because God opened up new possibilities. God said to Paul, hey, I know you're a local guy. You think in terms of Asia Minor, but maybe you should think about Macedonia. Maybe you should think about Europe. So it opens up new possibilities. It's also very ambitious. Europe's a big deal. So it's an ambitious vision. Paul has suddenly had his his scope changed from, well, I'm just kind of going around from here to there planting churches Suddenly, he gets a vision of what it means when Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Up till now, for him, the ends of the earth really meant the ends of Asia Minor. And now God says, no, when I when I told you ends of the earth, I really meant it. This is the real deal. Go as far as you can. Start in Macedonia. And so it's ambitious. The other thing it is, is it's inspirational. One of the things that strikes me about this is that Paul has the vision. But it says, when we heard, when he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia. We were convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. They're kind of saying, look, we keep running into these X's. Our map has these X's. I don't know what to do. Paul's got a vision. What are we going to do? Let's do what Paul has envisioned. So it's inspirational. It is striking to me that we are 16 chapters into the book of Acts, and it is in this sentence that we hear for the first time Luke used the word we. Up to this point, it's they. Paul did this, Peter did that, Philip did that, the Samaritan did that, the Ethiopian did that. In this sentence, he says, he says, when he, Paul, had seen the division, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us. This vision is inspirational to Luke, and he begins to incorporate himself in the story of what's going on here because he has been inspired by the vision. Finally, it guides decisions. They know where to go now. They they are convinced that God is calling them to Macedonia, so they go there. They they book travel. They He tells us this whole little uh, itinerary. They they, um, 
They set sail from Troas. They took a straight course to Samothrace. And, you know, if you're ever doing this, you can follow that same path. You know, we have all the details now of how to do this. Because the vision inspires the decision making. The vision enables them to say, what are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to get to Macedonia. What are we trying to accomplish? Do we need a car wash to do it? Having a vision of what it is you're trying to do tells you, okay, now what do I have to do to achieve that vision, to realize the vision? What are the steps I'm going to have to take? The vision actually guides the decisions. It helps you know we should do this, we shouldn't do that. So the vision is inspirational. So it's inspirational and it guides decision-making. So what do we do with this? We catch a vision. You know, first of all, let me just encourage you, catch a vision for yourself. You know, I think a lot of us, you know, as the poet said, we lead lives of quiet desperation. We put one foot in front of another, and that usually works. You know, if you're driving from from Los Angeles to El Paso, you can get on I-10 and pretty much go, right? Putting one foot in front of the other works. But sometimes conditions change. And you say, you know what, is this really where I want to go? Do I really want to do this? Sometimes we just miss the turn. We're going through Phoenix and we suddenly find ourselves on our way to Globe. We say, oops, wrong turn. Should have stayed on I-10. So there's things we can do by just moving forward one foot in front of the other. But sometimes we need to stop. We need to look around. We need to calibrate. We need to look at that map. And this is true for us as individuals as well as for the church. You know, have you thought about your life in terms of what it is, what is the vision that God has given you for your life? You know, what is it, what is the vision you have to be a parent or to be a husband or a father, a wife or a mother? What is the vision that God has given you? How you relate to people at work? How you relate to people in your neighborhood or at school? Do you have a vision? You know, I think, I think we can ask ourselves, well, well, don't I have to wait for, you know, can I, can I just manufacture a vision? Well, Maybe you can. Have you asked? You know, have you said, God, show me a picture. I understand. Yes, I should be a loving father. I should be a great husband. But can you show me what that actually looks like? Can you give me a vision, God? Help me to see what that would look like in my life. Do I need a car wash? (laughs) Maybe that would be a great thing. If I washed somebody's car, that might be a great way to show that I'm a loving husband. But give me a vision. You know, I think we, we say to ourselves, visions are for, for visionaries. But maybe that's because we don't ask for a vision. So before you say, you know, I don't have a vision, maybe you need to ask for one. But I want to talk about the church, because I think too often the church has kind of stumbled along uh, with a borrowed vision. It's not that it's a bad vision, but it's borrowed. It's generic. You know, our, our church has uh, two denominations, and the denominations have visions, of what they are up to. But they're generic. They're so generic, they might as well be our mission. You know, our mission is, is to make disciples of, uh, of, of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's a great mission, but it doesn't tell us whether we should have a car wash. And our denominational visions are so generic, they don't tell us what are we supposed to do right here. There's 12 churches in our neighborhood. Why are we here? Why are we here? What particular thing does God want us to be at work about as a church? So 
So the first thing is, is maybe we can't make up a vision, but we can ask God to give us one. The other thing we can do, though, is hope for a vision that is actually personal to us, that our vision is actually for us. In the 1960s, this church had a vision. Um, I've seen some of the early church documents, and they tell us why this church is here. You know, the, the 12 other churches in our neighborhood, I don't know why they're here, but I know why this church was was started. Because in the 1960s, people wanted a liberal church in this part of Anchorage. I mean, it's just right there. The problem with that vision is the word liberal. I'm not sure what it means. I don't know if I know today what they meant in 1960 or whatever it was, 68. I don't know if the word means the same thing. I don't know, do they mean politically liberal? Do they mean theologically liberal? I don't know what that meant. I wish their vision then was translated into more of a picture of what that would look like when the church was carrying out that vision. I wish that they had articulated that vision in terms of here's what it looks like when we're doing the thing that God has called this church to be. So we have a vision, but is that really enough? Is that too generic? Did you know we had that vision until I told you? I was actually talking to one of the old timers in the church, and they told me I missed the point, that the point of that was a liberal church in this part of Anchorage, because you couldn't get to that part of Anchorage during some seasons of the year, that the important part of that sentence was here, not liberal church. So I just miss it. It doesn't help me decide, should we have a car wash? So I want a vision that actually drives decision-making, helps me know what to do, because we can't do everything. But what our denominations are telling us is, look, if you're counting on our vision to guide you forward, you're in trouble because we're looking to you. We, you know, the bishop gave me that permission granting certificate saying, please help us figure out what it is we as a denomination are supposed to be at. What are we supposed to be doing? They are looking to the local church for inspiration. So if we're looking to the denominations, they're saying, no, 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 we're hoping you'll tell us. So what are we going to do? Well, our church is going to have a retreat in a couple of weeks. And the council is actually going to investigate what it is that God is calling us to do. What is our vision? So I'm going to ask your prayers for that. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm hoping that the council is able, by asking God for a vision, to catch a vision of what God is calling us to do, that at least we will have a glimmer of what that vision might be. So I'm going to ask your prayers for it, not because the church is going to then impose it on you, but I'm hoping what the council sees, the vision that we have, is so inspirational that like Luke, you'll start to use we when the vision comes up. So, let me close with this thought. How many of you have heard the speech that Martin Luther King gave in 1963? What's it called? I have a dream. You know, Martin Luther King had a dream, and maybe it started like Paul, with with a vision in the middle of the night, but it didn't stay there. He developed that dream, and he was able to articulate it, and people were able to rally around it because it is an inspirational dream. It guided action. People knew, what should we do? Should we, should we have a protest in this city or that city? How can we live out that dream as a way of achieving our mission? 
A century before, William Wilberforce had a dream of a world without slavery. And he led the British evangelicals first to outlaw the slave trade and then later slavery itself. The church has always been guided by vision. From Paul and his man of Macedonia to William Wilberforce and the elimination of slavery to the civil rights movement in our own country 50 years ago. This is what the church has always done. And so I will pray that you join us in developing a vision for Jewel Lake Parish in the years ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you guide us, not with individual instructions, but by giving us gifts and then telling us, here's what it would look like if you did that. So we pray, Lord, you would guide this church. You would give us a clear vision, a compelling and inspirational vision of how this church can carry out the mission that Jesus has assigned us. We pray particularly for the members of council that the work we do to understand your vision will be effective in guiding this church in the years ahead. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.